Hello and welcome to CEO Stories, the podcast from the Greater Birmingham Chambers of Commerce, where I delve into the minds of some of the region's leading and up-and-coming CEOs. I'm Henrietta Brearley and I'm the Chief Executive of the Greater Birmingham Chambers of Commerce and your host. And today I am delighted to be joined by a really well-known senior leader in the region. It's Paul Tandy, Chief Exec of the NEC Group. Hello, Paul. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Henrietta. Um, thank you for having me on your podcast. It's a, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts and learning a bit more about how you got to where you are today. So just for just in case anyone isn't familiar with the NEC Group, I mean, it's fairly iconic in the region. I imagine most of our listeners will be, but they may not be aware of quite all that you do. So for those who are less familiar, just tell us a little bit about the NEC Group. So our main business lines now, as of today, are we have an exhibition business, which people know, which the majority of that is at the NEC site in the 21 halls, 200,000 square metres of covered space. That ranges from anything from a trade show to a consumer show to a live event. Um, So we do live conferences, big conferences for BT, BQ, B&Q, et cetera, et cetera. But also um, that opened in 1976 with five halls and we've consequently added on things since time. And in fact, it was opened by the Queen um, in June 1976. So that business is number one in the UK by any measure in terms of um, occupancy, in terms of square meterage, in terms of number of shows, in terms of any measure you care. And it's one of the busiest uh, exhibition centres in Europe. Um, no doubt the location is one of the advantages 100% because it's located by a mainline train station plus also the airport. Interesting fact, you don't actually have to go outside the moment you pick up your bag from the carousel to get to the exhibition centre. You actually, it's covered all the way. So so that's, that's um, our main line of business in terms of live events. But then we have two arenas. Our arena service, as you know, consumer events, so music, live events, so um, Horse of the Year, Crufts, um, <clears throat> and various other things, but also music is our mainstay there. And that's morphing now. We're getting more and more different uses for that, um, for those arenas. And we've refurbed both of those arenas in the last 10 years. So we spent quite a lot of money refurbing it and keeping our business in line with where the market is. Um, with that in mind, um, we constantly, you know, every day we try and refine the offer for the customer to make sure the offer for the customer is right. So when we um, refurbished what people know as the NEC Arena, which is actually the Resorts World Arena, um, when we refurbished that, we added on six thousand square meters of entertainment space, and we call it the Forum. Um, so it's pre-show. Um, <clears throat> So that's bars, restaurants, hospitality, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of people are now hiring that for their live event. So the post-Commonwealth Games party for the team, the OC, the organising committee, and everybody, the volunteers, et cetera, was held in that space. Um, can't tell you how much they had to drink, can't tell you any stories. but um, So that that's an interesting space. And what we are going to do with that, we will evolve that space plus that arena. That arena is about a 16,000-seater, um, sorry, 16,000-capacity arena. Um, we have ambitions to take that up to 21, 20 and a half, or 22,000-seater um, arena. 
that's where we see the market going and that's that's kind of been in the business since since i can remember since i took over in terms of we've got to keep constant ahead of the market and then our um one of our other businesses our convention business so we have two main convention centers the icc in the middle of birmingham which opened in 91 and undoubtedly was responsible for the regeneration of um not wholly responsible but part of the kickstart to the regeneration of central birmingham in the early 90s um still an award-winning convention center still one of only two convention centers purpose-built that is profitable in the uk and that that's housed the g7 and various other things um throughout its time and still wins um awards for, for what it is which is an incredible um center a convention center right in the heart of birmingham and we have the symphony hall next door as a tenant and they've done a fantastic refurb hands up to that team they've done a brilliant refurb really fits with um where that area of Victoria Square, et cetera, and Chamberlain Square and all those lovely public realm areas that are going through central Birmingham it's now. really pulled together that city centre space, isn't it? I mean, during the Commonwealth Games, didn't the city look fantastic? I and mean, it looked absolutely a number one European city, but I'm slightly biased, but I do think that was true. Then we have um, some other areas. We have a catering business, a catering services business that services all of our centres so our arenas they do all the catering in our arenas all of our exhibition centre and our convention centre where they do banqueting as you know for some of your events but also awards and various other special events but then we also service outdoor so we do uh, a lot of the golf events in the UK um, but we also have outside contracts like Cadbury World we do the catering there we also do the catering at Dudley Zoo and various other places around the region and in the UK um then within that business, we have a um, franchise operations. We run Subway, we run Starbucks. We're actually um, one of Starbucks' biggest customers. We're building a new Starbucks on the NEC campus, right uh, in the middle of um, an electrical vehicle charging forecourt. Mm. Um, that'll be 182 charging points. Um, 82 will be fast charging and the rest will be uh, a slower charge. But... Um, and that will be the largest forecourt, electrical vehicle forecourt charging centre in not only the UK, but in Europe. Well, as an electric car driver myself, I am delighted to hear that. That sounds fantastic. Um, so you, you won't have range anxiety. Just to, <laughs> just to finish, we've then got a ticketing business, which we launched um, pretty early on into my career as, as CEO. Because what one thing that was important to me, we have a bunch of people that go through our venue to see content. And when I got here, we didn't own either. So not that we want to own the content. That's not the point. But what we do want to own, we want to know who comes. And so we can sell them content better, but we can actually make our pipe, our connection, our venues much more valuable to them in terms of the experience. So if you know who's coming, where they're coming from, what they're coming to see, why they're coming to see it, what their preference is, you can actually tailor your offering to them. And so I wanted to launch a data business. And so we did. Um, Phil Mead, one of our old MDs, um, helped do that. In fact, he did that and he launched a ticketing business. And that's so ticketfactory.com is our ticketing business. And that's a main driver for our data business, which also now morphs into a lot of the decisions we make in our catering business are driven off data. A lot of decisions we make 
in terms of customer experience. So our model is really straightforward for the hard standing venues. Um, it's all centered on customer experience. So understanding what the customer wants. So continuous surveys, asking them, get them in to do um, interviews with you, panels, et cetera, et cetera. What is it that you want to see? What is it that's going to make your life easier? Now, you can't give them everything they want because it'd be a free ride. But what, what you're trying to do is understand what the difference is that we can put in that keep us ahead of market, but also hit the points that the customer wants. So it's the customer's customer, if you see one, the visitor, the audience, et cetera. Um, and so we invest CapEx into that. And that, that moves the score, which into, I had a great experience, et cetera. We then share that with the people bringing the events to us and say, look, your customers are having a great time here. And that helps us have better conversations around pricing, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that's our model. Investment CapEx in the customer experience and eventually it becomes EBITDA accretive. Um, and so <clears throat> those are our main lines. And then we have a real estate business, which, as you know, we have an ambition to build 5,000 homes on the site. But before that, we've got um, a warehousing business at the back of the estate uh, at the NEC. And so we've got tenants there, but we also have tenants inside the ICC business as well and dotted around our various bits of our campuses. So that real estate business um, is quite a significant part to our business now because we have partners like Genting. We have partners um, like uh, Merlin with the Bear Grylls estate and various others and the hotels that all understand what we're trying to do is build out our real estate to become the number one leisure and entertainment complex in Europe. Mm -hmm. I think it's safe to say from you know everything you're saying, it's, it's very clear that NEC Group is a national leader and globally on the stage as that leader in every aspect of live events and experiences. I'm going to bring the conversation back to you now, Paul, if you don't mind. I'm already getting the sense that you're someone who's not really content to settle. You're someone who's always looking for the, the next development, the next investment, the next thing, moving things forward. But did you always think you'd end up doing what you're doing now, you know, being a, live, a leader in this this whole live events industry? Was that something that, you know, right from a young age, you thought, yeah, you know, that's an industry I want to be part of. That's what I, what I want to get involved in. Um, uh, my honest answer is no, um, because when, when, you know, growing up in the 70s and 80s, um, I didn't really know what you were going to do. We, mm -hmm. we, my parents came here. We lived in a part of West London. I was born in West London. And so you weren't really aware of what, what was out there because my parents came from India. And so they didn't really know what opportunities and industries are here. So, um, you know, apart from obviously becoming a doctor, lawyer, accountant, blah, blah, blah. But I went through like a ton of us went through in those, whether you were an or not is, you know, um, make the sacrifices, play a lot of sport at school, but study hard and get to university and then decide what you're going to do. In those days, there's milk rounds. And so I was fortunate enough to get on a scheme with BT as a BT graduate. And that took me into various things. And the training there was was fantastic, second to none. Um, I always had it within me to want to be a leader, Um so I captained various football teams and various other sports I played. Um, so you're kind of used to that role. I'm not saying that, I know, leadership is is innate. It's Leadership can be taught to a certain degree, but you've got to have something about you. And mm -hmm. so I guess that that was there and I didn't mind being a leader. Um, 
So from an early age, I wanted to lead something. I wanted to, you know, be my own boss, I guess. Um, not that I have a problem with authority for anyone who's listening to this. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I guess that was it. But I don't, I don't, you know, did, did I think I'd be a leader in the events industry? Um, don't know. Um, does anyone really know what they're going to become in 30, 40 years? But um, Joe, we inter- could, we have had one guest on this podcast who knew exactly what they wanted to do and went on and did it. But everyone else, it's been a, I had no idea I'd end up here. Yeah, I mean, just just, just, just to finish that, I, I did know I wanted to better have a better life than what I grew up in. That was a determining factor. Not saying it was terrible. We had, we had a great time, but we didn't have a lot. Um, and so what I did know is whatever I do, it's going to be better than this. And then when you start having children, you think, you you know, whatever you do, it's got to, I've got to give them every single opportunity that I never had or never knew about. Not that I begrudge any of that because we had a great time. You know, life was a lot simpler. Um, so that was one of the motivating factors. But the biggest thing about where, where I guess you find yourself as you get on in your career is the other things you do, not just your... You know, I'm on the board of Metro Bank. There's various other bits and pieces. So it's it's quite a complex piece, which which I do think is 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 really interesting and adds to each business I'm involved in. Mm-hmm. Picking up lots of different perspectives on leadership through those additional roles as well. So how did you you went started off a grad scheme at BT? How did yeah. you end up coming to the NEC Group? Because you you started uh, initially as commercial director, didn't you, in 2006? But what what, what happened yeah, between? So, so I used then? to. Um, um, had didn't have many um early jobs bt uh into yellow pages then pearl and dean and then a company called blenheim rang me and then so i, I got headhunted into there and ran exhibitions data products um directories and a bit of publishing for them um ran various businesses and i was fortunate enough and they did they were they were excellent in terms of pushing you forward we were a global business we we're footsie 100 the training was excellent and they pushed you into areas of that you just wouldn't imagine. You know, I was launching shows in Moscow in the mid nineties. Um, I was running, I was an MD of a business in France in the late nineties. Um, and I was working out in New York um, from the late nineties to the early two thousands. And so they said, look, you need to settle down and or maybe go back to the States or whatever. And that didn't really suit me. So didn't suit me for personal reasons because my father wasn't very well and I wanted to see him and et cetera, et cetera. So um, the NEC rang and I thought this is quite opportune. I knew the NEC, I'd run shows there um, and I did see it as a bit of a sleeping giant. And so they rang and so I came here and started as commercial director. And um, and I remember my father said, so you're going from FTSE 100 to a company that's owned by the council. How does, what, what, I said, look, I think this is a great opportunity because I think there's something to be done here. Um, and I want a bit more control of my destiny. So so we did that. And I always knew there was an opportunity to change the um, ownership because these these businesses are undoubtedly, they would only start by public money because the return on investment is such a long period of time. These businesses are economic regenerators. Fundamentally, that's what they do. And so if you look at everything that we've done since I've been CEO uh, and before me, you know, the teams that have done it before me have been fantastic as well. So it's not. um, 
what they've done is evolved the business and it means more people come to the area, more people spend on the local economy, more etc. So more to, you know, there's more wealth created as a result of these places, and then it helps to build out Solihull. And you know, you can't Solihull must recognize that part of its development as a town, city, wherever it's going, as metropolis has been because of the airport, the train station, and the NEC site. And so um and the connectivity of us all. Mm-hmm. So so these things are economic generators, but there comes a point where the ownership model actually doesn't suit where the business because it needs to take better risk. Mm. Um, it needs to invest its money in a different way, etc. So tell me a bit more about that because it sounds like your your father was bang on because uh, within about a year you went from commercial director to chief executive. I'll come back to the the question of ownership shortly, but first of all, how did you find that transition? You know, you, you mentioned that you always felt like you wanted to be a leader and that you were looking to step into that sort of controlling your own destiny type space. But how was did, was there a transition or was it something where you're like duck to water? This is easy becoming the uh, becoming the MD. I was an MD before I came, so and that was kind of my father's point. Um, you're an MD of business, you're a CEO of another business um, in the same company kind of thing. Um, what are you going to do as commercial director when you're not? So I think I don't think it's, it's how you manage people. And I'm not saying it, you're only as good as your team, which whatever you do. And the key to our business, and I say this to our people all the time, we can have the best buildings in the world. We can have the best offer in the world. We can have the best connectivity. But without the right people, you're nowhere. Absolutely nowhere. So our business is a people business. As much as people think it's an infrastructure business, yes, that does help. But if unless you've got the right people. So it's really one of the things that I found coming to this business was it's like lifting the lid on a, a thousand flowers and letting them bloom. Because they, they weren't oppressed. So that isn't my, what I'm trying to say. But... I just think that, that what they wanted to do and how they wanted to run the business was very different. And being, you know, I was a lot younger then, sadly. Um, and so I think over time, you know, you need younger people, different minds coming into the leadership. Um, and some would say, you know, I'm, I'm towards the end of my time there. And I, I, I would, you know, at some point I would agree with that because you, you need fresh thinking, fresh minds and that energy that a new mind brings is, Look at football. The bounce that you get when a new manager comes in. You know, they win the first couple of games and etc. So the, there's a reason for it. So, you know, it's it's business is about managing risk and what you can get people to believe that they can achieve. That's fundamentally what it's about. And then setting up the right environment for them to achieve that with the right resources, the right capital, the right um, benefits, the right software systems, et cetera, et cetera. But it's really about making people believe they can go way beyond their, their own limitations and giving them the tools to do that. And so that's what we've done. We've set the whole scene in terms of investing. We've invested in our teams year upon year upon year in training, year upon year about senior management training, year upon year we've, we've gone about making sure that our strategy of developing out the campus, developing out our people, developing out our offer and keeping the customer experience the number one, which is what it's been since 2008, really, when I set the strategy for the business and maintaining that that's where we need to be. And, and you know, and it does help if you achieve it. So I talked about getting a casino license. I talked about landing 
resorts world. I talked about Bear Grylls. I talked about High Speed 2. I've talked about the homes. I've talked about the investment, the arenas, redoing those. And when you do all of this, you get credibility and people believe you and they kind of think, yeah, the boss knows um, and the team, really, because you're not. it's not about you. It's about your team. Mm-hmm. And proving that, you know, it's it's not just talk. You've delivered time and time again on those ambitious plans. And you need a bit of luck, Henrietta. So, you know, if anyone out there thinks they're, they're, it's all down to them, then they're slightly deluded because it's it's luck as well. You create your own luck, as Gary Player said, the more and more I practice, the luckier I get. So if you look at where our business is, Commonwealth Games has made our business a lot easier to sell. We sell the region. We don't just sell our facilities. And the region now is people, connectivity, et cetera. That's fantastic. And the Commonwealth Games really was just extraordinary. We even managed to pull off the weather, talking of sometimes a bit of luck helps along the way. Um, So I would like to bring you back to the question of ownership, because you've led the NEC Group through two ownership changes in recent years. First, it was sold by Birmingham City Council to LDC in 2015, and then from LDC to Blackstone in 2018. How did you find uh, leading a team through that? Were, Were there any changes of culture that came with that new ownership? Yeah, there is. And I did that in my early part of my career with um, Blenheim and United uh, Business Media. So that's kind of what I what I knew. Um, wasn't that difficult to go back to that sort of headspace. Um, if you're honest with people, tell them about the journey. They trust you. Um, tell them about the benefits of the journey. Tell them it won't be easy and it won't be easy. Um, but if you look at our business, we have changed the senior management team over time um and that's not because um people weren't good enough it's only because the jobs change and therefore the skills change and have these people got the skills that we need and can we train them in or do you just buy them in um and the business has changed considerably so through through the period of probably 2011 to 2015 we kind of knew what the journey was going to be we were talking to sovereigns anyway about the change of ownership um and the city were fantastic i have got to say you know i've worked for um plc shareholders so public shareholders i've worked for private shareholders and i've worked for um government-owned assets i.e um city council and they're as good as each one has different things the thing about you know if you work for a plc your shareholders understand the business but they don't care these guys maybe don't understand 100 percent of the business but they care so you know which do you prefer so i think the city were um and it was albert um before that was mike but then it was albert who really said right we're going to do this and we're going to find because he knew that he would actually let the the business flourish and look what we've achieved since then um you know, more events, better offer, et cetera, et cetera, and invested into it. And it's something that the business and Birmingham was proud of, you know, the Commonwealth Games undoubtedly. Uh, so so I think the transition um, has changed, and that's all about the cadence of what you do. So I think under the city ownership, because of the guidelines of what we could and couldn't do and the um, financial and economic return that they were looking for and how they that was managed, the cadence of that is very different to private ownership, particularly private equity ownership. And so the incentivization is very different as well. So people feel part of it because they know 
the reward is coming their way. And and undoubtedly, as much as people love working, um, it's not just for their health. It's you know so they can pay the bills, and bills to, to, in today's environment are hugely important. Um, and so it's it's the cadence of the business in terms of the speed at which you make decisions, the speed at which you expect results to come in and you expect people to work at. That's the biggest change. Um, and then um, the sort of benefits that you give people and the investments you make in people, those are the big things that have changed because you've got far more control over your economics and, importantly, your finances, where you put them, how you invest them, and what you're looking for in return because these these private businesses are used to shorter-term profits and shorter-term returns, and they only come if you invest in people. So very much finding a completely different rhythm with sort of pros and cons to both, but just very different rhythm under the, behind the scenes. Uh, you know, 100%. And, you know, your board meetings are different. So it's, I, I don't know, it's probably far more complicated than I'm making out. But um, I find that if you communicate with your people in an honest and transparent way about what the change means, um, which is it allows us to invest in our business and invest in you, more importantly, so you can enjoy your job better, we will be expecting much more from you, but we'll be training you for that. You, you'll get added benefits, et cetera, and you'll be part of the journey. And people are happy when they're busy. You know, it's when there's not a lot to do and you come into the gate and the guys at the gate say to you, boss, there isn't a lot going on. What's going on? You know, those days are gone. And they can see how busy we are and they can see, you know, the Moxie Hotel and they can see the other developments we're doing and saying, you know, we love working here. Yeah, it's an exciting trajectory to be part of. But speaking of change, uh, I wonder if I can bring you to obviously the you know biggest event of our, our generation, really, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, your industry was among the hardest and most dramatically hit by the pandemic. And if you don't mind me saying so, Paul, you strike me as someone who likes to be in control and master of his own destiny, a master of the destiny of your business. Um, how did it feel trying to lead your organisation through the pandemic when so much was out of your control? Our industry um, was hit extremely hard and I would say penalised unfairly. Um, And that's, we look at ourselves and I think we've got to look at ourselves as an industry and understand why is that. And it's a lack of knowledge at senior levels within government. Um, And a lack of appreciation as well. Because, as I said, economic regenerators, we bring people together, etc., but we quite quickly adapted a COVID protocol. But if you step back, no one alive had gone through what we were going through. And so we quite quickly had to triage our business and do deals with our suppliers. And thankfully, all of them, bar one, were willing and happy to cooperate. And then we spoke to our customers and, and, and everyone kind of understood. But it was, you know, there were some dark days in those days about you know are we still going to be alive as a business when this thing because when you close a business on the 26th of march did you really think that you were going to be closed for near enough a year you kind of thought this is going to happen for three or four months and but within weeks you kind of thought actually this is going to be longer we knew it was coming from our contacts over in the far east because as a exhibition industry you talk to each other globally so we kind of knew it was coming. You could feel it coming across Europe. You could feel it, you know, from our guys in Hong Kong said, look, guys, it's coming your way. 
you know, this is airborne and we're shut. And so we kind of had a vague idea and that was around January time. And so we were a bit concerned as why haven't we shut down? Why haven't we? But anyway, that happened. Um, so we sent everyone home. Everyone was working from home. Those were when furlough kicked in, were in furlough and we used furlough. And thank God furlough was around because it saved the jobs of many, many people and saved many businesses, not just us. And then uh, Nightingales. And Nightingales was quite a tough time for us. Um, the NHS didn't know how to or what to do. Um, and the military were there. but So the military knew what to do, but they weren't used to dealing with organisations that also knew what to do. I asked, we know how to do this stuff. So we built a hospital within two weeks. We could have probably built it within 10 days, if I'm honest. 4,000 beds, 16 miles of um, copper piping, through our venue and we did the right thing. I went to the board and said, look, people are dying here. We need to do the right thing and give the venue to them. And we did. The only thing, any bad memory I've got about that um, is because you gotta you got to forgive people because it was brand new. You didn't know what to do and it was a stressful environment. But um, we gave our venue for free, but yet all the suppliers were running around our um, venue telling us how much money they were making. And that mm. was difficult for my staff at saying, boss, you know, we we've done this for nothing, and these guys are telling us that they're making out like so. That 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 uh, sticks with me, and I, I do. That's my only bad memory of that. But yeah, so we did that. That was, and then then I got elected to this government panel that was trying to establish how we as venues, not just in exhibitions, conferences, but also in music, um, and to a larger degree, sport could open in a way that wouldn't be affected. And there were scientists and doctors on that and medics on that panel. John Van Tan was on that panel. So it was quite, it was a challenging environment. Um, but ultimately they were there to prove that we're a safe environment. And so we proved that and we could open. But, you know, there were policy decisions at that time by the leadership that did lead me in a place where I kind of thought this is just not right, which was Westfield could open. 125,000 people with a mask, no qualification, no restriction. Um, and we couldn't. And we're three times the size of Westfield. Most amount of people we could have was 30 people. And that, that really bugged me. And I kind of thought, hang on. So this is political. This is not based on science. So anyway, that that was um, COVID. Now, as an industry, have we recovered? Um, I think we've come out of it better than I thought we would. And I say that because there has been supply side casualties. There has been some organiser casualties, but by and large, a lot of our customers have survived. Are they running in any way near health? No. You know, a lot of these guys are limping. What the issue is, is that the market hasn't fully recovered because it just doesn't recover overnight. Because if you think about the annual cycle of exhibitions, it takes a bit of time. Music market has recovered, but there's a bit of a nuance within that about um, number of people turning up. So normally within um, our music and our concerts, we have sort of one or 2% no show pre COVID, but that's, that's a higher percentage now. Um, and that's one because people can't keep up with how many times shows have been rescheduled and they've got tickets or not, but also that people have just through pretty much two years of COVID people have, become a lot more local mm, got out of the habits of it and sitting on the sofa and working from home you know the 
the working from home um, thing that's changed a lot in business. You know, there isn't really that many businesses where they don't have hybrid working now. Um, so people are becoming used to, you know, sitting on their sofa. And so, but I think that's beginning to change. People now embrace what's going on. And funny enough, um, COVID seems to have not disappeared. It's still there and people still get it. I had it at the beginning of June. Um, but I think society can cope with it a lot better now. Well, speaking of major global events and sort of getting back into full swing, it seems like the NEC group has been busier than ever over the, the recent months. Um, and I know just since uh, the start of the year, it's amazing, isn't it, that we were still talking about Omicron and COVID restrictions maybe sort of 10 months ago. Um, and we are where we are now, where, you know, just at the NEC group, you've seen Concert for Ukraine, Commonwealth Games. I know there's a lot more exciting things planned. What have been your highlights of the past year? Opening. I cannot communicate to you clearly how dark some of those days were when you're talking to government, you're talking... So I did a video each week to staff because um, I thought it's important to take them through that journey. And particularly, a lot of our staff were on furlough. And then, unfortunately, we had to make um, nearly half of our staff redundant because we just couldn't afford to keep them on furlough because there's a cost of furlough. And, you know, you're running out of cash because... You're not putting on any events and certainly didn't get paid for um, Nightingale. So those, those you know, saying goodbye to those team members, etc., wasn't wasn't easy. And funny enough, we're hiring them at the rate of knots now and they all want to come back. So clearly we've done something right. But so I think opening our business again um, was the highlight to me. Then educating our board and our various shareholders to understand that this this isn't going to snap back because of the annual exhibition cycle, because people have gone from the, the number of visitors. So Europe still isn't travelling as much as it was. Undoubtedly, I don't think Brexit's helped that situation and we won't get into the Brexit conversation. But um, so I think our audiences now are around 75 to 80%. We need them to be 100%. Will they get back to 100%? Probably by 24. Um, and that's what I've always said. It's going to take us two or three years to recover from this um, as a business. So I think opening was the biggest highlight to me. Commonwealth Games and seeing people, seeing that event take place, um, one of the highlights for me was at the closing ceremony, actually, when Aussie came on. Uh, that, that that just brought everything about the, the essence of that event. But, you know, it was a Birmingham event. It was about Brummies and it was about being on a global stage. You had a global superstar who was a Brummie who came back to pay homage to his city. And I thought that was fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. And, you know, the song he chose and everything. That, that stadium was rocking was absolutely rocking did you know he was going to come on because I, I have to admit they totally caught me out um if i was going yeah i'm sure there'll be something on black sabbath then there wasn't and there wasn't and there wasn't and i got to the point of going oh, there's not there's not going to be anything i'd heard all these rumors that um ozzy was back in back in brum but got to the end going oh, they're just they're not going to be able to pull it off and then he appeared and <laughs> shamelessly it totally caught me um i got really into the moment but did you know did you have uh, full knowledge i, I did I didn't know. And, you know, Duran Duran being there, and I thought they sounded fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, 
and you know the, the whole cultural piece when the Bangra dance was on at the end of ceremony that that you know near enough brought a tear to my eye. I thought the whole thing was was great and then a lot of the athletes um because we were in venue you'd bump into them and they were saying you know we love this is a fantastic place to be well the atmosphere around the NEC campus was brilliant as well I went to see a couple of the uh, sporting events there and it was absolutely heaving it was wonderful the netball was just you know fantastic it with the atmosphere within our arenas our venues and the stadium even walking around the city so yeah it was a great success but we need, we need to continue with that cadence we need the next event so what now i mean i, I know we've been delighted at the chamber that, that you're back because we, we pulled i think just in the last couple of months we had our, our annual awards in march um uh, and then our future faces awards uh on a couple of fridays ago back in august um and for both we were just so delighted with how keen the business community is to get back and networking i mean our future faces awards was a friday before a bank holiday and we'd still sold 450 tickets shout out to the uh, the caterers by the way the food was wonderful we had lots of great feedback on our, on that um but we're, we're back. You're back in business. You've been able to deliver these incredible things, Commonwealth Games. What's next? I mean, you mentioned the master plan. Is, is that the, the next big focus for you? Delivering the business is a big focus. You know, we've we've got a full calendar across the arenas. We've got big CapEx investments. As I said, we want to change the the arena at the NEC and turn it into a 21, 22,000 seater arena. There's some other investments I want to make into the offer at the NEC. The master plan we work with uh, Wahid Nazir's team. Um, he's gone independent now at NCL and he's doing a fantastic job for us. And and so we're not that far from kicking that off. Um, and that the ambition at the NEC site has always been work, rest, live and play. And so we've got three of those ticked and now the live element is coming through. Um, and that, that that's a programme that will take 20 to 25 years, 20 years probably to build out those homes because the market can't absorb them all in one go. Um, and it's the biggest scheme in Europe. Um, not everything we do is the biggest in Europe, by the way, but um, it's so that, that, that will add a lot. And then you've got high speed too, you know, the connectivity that that will bring for us um, to and from London. Plus it's just the speed of travel and the capacity it gives the, the other train line. Um, we do need better connectivity. I am quite vocal about the fact that we're the second city and we've only got two trains to London per hour. We used to have three, probably four uh, fast trains. So I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that's good enough. But I understand their challenge, you know, staffing. Um, but the UK faces considerable challenge and these things um, are there to help meet that challenge. You know, we've decided to go our own way, whether that's right or wrong, and play our own field. So we do need these infrastructure investments to put this city back to number one because we're facing considerable cost side challenge and we will do for the next few years. So I think us as a business, our job is to um, continue developing our business, developing our offer, developing our people. But so the master plan, 5,000 homes, first phase will be 2,500 homes, with a load of public realm and space, we'll be building a school, we'll be building various other um, amenities for the people that live there. And it will be um, urban dwelling, it won't be family homes, because you can't have that beside where we are. And plus, I'm not sure people want to live that close to an airport. 
Um, we work with Nick at the airport quite a bit about what he wants to do and how he continually wants to develop his offer. Um, and then in the city centre, we will continue to evolve ICC. Um, there's some other uses we're bringing into, into that. Our warehouse uh, real estate business at the NEC is going to go through a bit of a change, and that might, um, you'll hear about that in the near future. I can't tell you exactly what that is. So yeah, there's, there's some there's some interesting things that we're developing. There's some, another ledger play that we've just signed off um, that will come to market probably Q2, Q3 next year because these things take a long time to build. So it's about continuous development, continuous investment in your business so that there's there's more reasons to come to the campus and spend a bit of time. Um, Resorts World, as as an offer, is going through quite a bit of change in terms of is retailing the right thing? Does it need to move more to a leisure and entertainment offer, which is what it's moving towards? Um, I mean, that place is, you can't get a table in any of the restaurants Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. So we need more of that capacity as we bring more people to the site. Fantastic. I, you know, I'm so reminded of something you said right at the beginning of the, the role of um, NEC Group Exhibition and Conference Centres in driving regeneration. Because there's all these fantastic images of, say, the city centre uh, when the ICC was first built, the NEC when that was first built, and the incredible transformation of the world around it is just phenomenal. And that, that ongoing progress, particularly around um, at the NEC site, when, like you say, the interchange station for HS2, it's kind of been the catalyst of a whole new community, really, hasn't it? When when we look back on this in sort of 40 years time there'll be almost a whole new town built out there when you take into account the the NEC master plan urban growth company plans and all sorts around the area and Arden Cross around that train station once a train station owns Arden Cross have got ambitions and and the way business is going you know there'll be a lot more people working outside of London um so you know the time's right for our master plan and I'm very pleased we've finally got there um with what our plans are and we just need to push it that last stage get it all wrapped up in a bow and get on with it um but it takes it's taken me 10 years to get to this well speaking of wrapping things up in a nice bow we are coming to the end of the podcast so we've got two quick fire questions for you paul the first is thinking back over your career are there any leaders or individuals that have inspired you you know you've mentioned your father a few times but are there any particular leaders or individuals that have inspired you in your career I think your parents inspire you because you don't know anything else and they're the ones that, you know, um, stay with you in your mind because they're the ones that taught you right and wrong, I guess. But, um, and to a certain extent, you look back in rose-tinted glasses to you as you were growing up. Um, my parents sadly aren't here. Um, they both passed away. I think I've learned as much as I have from good managers, from bad managers. I learned from my team. I've worked with some great people. I Today, I work with some great people. Um, you learn from other industries, what other leaders are doing, how they behave. So a leader has only got two real things that they can control, which is behaviour and communication. Um, and so if you're aware of that, and by communication, it's two ears, one mouth, and you need to use them in that ratio. You need to listen twice as much as you talk. Um but it's the way you communicate with authenticity and be honest, be yourself. So along the way, I've learned all this. And you don't know that from day one. You know, you evolve as a leader. Um, 
and being brave just don't you know like Birmingham tagline is be bold you've got to you've got to push it and did I know that we were going to be where we are today when I took over god no I had an idea that roughly we wanted to be there are we there no we're probably over there but it's it's the belief in what you can achieve and making other people energized to believe that showing them the way getting some credibility about what you've delivered and then it becomes a bit of a roller coaster it carries on going and then people know what they're doing um so have i learned that from anyone in particular i can't pinpoint it a lot of what i've learned is i've taken the out you know, you, you can't be self-referenced as a leader. You've got to be outside. You've got to be external. You've got to look at what's going on and pick the best of what's out there, but also pick the worst of how not to do things. And that's equally important, I guess. So I can't pinpoint one or two people. Oh, thank you. You've almost preempted my last question, which was going to be one piece of advice for an aspiring CEO, but you've just offered some fantastic nuggets of advice and insight there. Is there anything that you want to add? Be yourself. Be present talk to people, take the time to talk to people, get, there is a balance to be achieved because you can work 24 seven. And I think you've got to, you've got to watch that as much as you think you can achieve that. The balance is the hardest part because you have got, if you've got a family or not, it's about you. And, you know, there's a lot of learning in the oxygen mask thing on a, on an airline. Um, Because if you're not right, you can't look after anyone else. And so leadership is not just about it. you've got to be right. You've got to be authentic. You've got to be, you know, leadership is about doing the right thing. It's not always going to suit you personally. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Paul, uh, for sharing your journey and your insights with us today. And we'll be watching out with interest for that announcement around the warehousing side of the NEC group as well. Um, there's, some others, there's some others coming, don't worry. And I get the sense that we're never going to be short of an announcement. There's always plenty of momentum and plenty coming through. Um, So to all of those at home listening, thank you so much for joining us for today's podcast. Don't forget you can subscribe to CEO Stories wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on the social media at GRB Ham Chambers on Twitter, Greater Birmingham Chambers of Commerce on LinkedIn. And of course, don't forget to check out the incredible array of events, experiences and just about everything else on the go across the NEC group.